Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for holding on tight as the uh, Senate votes were happening. Um, so um, thank you for joining us at SAIS, Johns Hopkins University's Rethinking Iran Initiative for this very timely conversation on Iran-US relations at this critical junction. I'm Nargis Bajoli, an assistant professor of Middle East Studies at SAIS, and we're honored to have Senator Chris Murphy join us today in this virtual fireside chat with Professor Varinas. Senator Chris Murphy is a United States Senator from Connecticut. He serves on the Foreign Relations Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and the Appropriations Committee. Prior to the Senate, uh, Senator Murphy served for three, year, for three terms in the U.S. House representing Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. In Congress, Senator Murphy is acknowledged as a leading voice for stronger anti-gun violence measures, reforming of the nation's mental health system, and implementing a smarter foreign policy. Senator Murphy has been a strong voice in uh, resetting relations with Iran through greater dialogue and diplomacy. And he'll be joined by my colleague, Professor Vadi Nast, who's the Maji Khadouri Professor of Middle East Studies and International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University's uh, School of Advanced International Studies. So without further ado, I turn the floor over to Professor Nast and Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Bajorli, and, and thank you, Senator, for, for uh, joining us today. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you back uh, uh, to, to SAIS uh, for this very timely conversation. Um, I wanted to start uh, by uh, uh, asking you uh, uh, a question that is very often, often out there and being posed, that, that the administration what, during the campaign was seemed to be much more on a forward foot about returning to the JCPOA nuclear deal. There was talk of a compliance for compliance approach. President Biden wrote that if Iran was willing to comply, that the United States would do as well. And now it looks like uh, the, the rhetoric of the administration has shifted towards something different, uh, as it at least came out during some of the confirmation hearings about a longer and stronger deal, as opposed to returning to the nuclear deal. Where do you, how, how, do, how do we, should we understand this shift if it's that's the case? And, and, and where do you see the relations standing right now? Uh, well, listen, thank you very much for having me. I'm sorry we're a little delayed in the beginning. You can hear the buzzers uh, happening behind me as uh, we continue to work through votes this after uh, this afternoon. Um, but uh, always great to be here with you, Valley. Thank you to P Professor Bajoli for the great work that she does. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, I, I believe this administration is committed to rejoining the JCPOA. They have said as such repeatedly, and uh, they know, as I do, that if we have any hope at beginning a longer term dialogue with Iran around uh, their series of malevolent behaviors in the region and around the world outside of their nuclear program, uh, that is best done uh, within the confines of the JCPOA. Um, not only because the world is safer and the region is safer, if Iran's breakout time is back outside of a year rather than three to four months as it is today, but also because while we're in the JCPOA, we are in lockstep with our allies. Um, President Trump you know, inherited a, a fairly unique framework, a gift from President uh, Obama, wherein Europe, the United States, China, and Russia were uh, working together 
uh, to counter Iranian influence. And in a very short period of time, it became the United States on one side uh, with Iran working with Europe and Russia and China uh, to try to avoid the dire consequences of US unilateral sanctions. Um, we need to get back on the same page as our allies. Uh, your question is, has the administration's position or strategy shifted. Listen, no secret that Donald Trump um, took steps uh, near the end of his administration to make it very difficult for the Biden administration to get back into the JCPOA, new sanctions, uh, attacks on um, uh, Iranian individuals, um, uh, support for allied attacks on Iranian individuals. Um, you know, rose the temperature such that uh, dialogue was going to be very difficult. Iran has not helped uh, itself uh, since the swearing in of Joe Biden by um, its proxies, increased attacks on U.S. assets in particular uh, in Iraq. Um, it still is my belief that we're going to get back into the nuclear agreement, but it is now likely going to take some dialogue between the United States and Iran. It's going to uh, perhaps involve some uh, early good faith measures taken by the United States and Iran as a predicate to getting back into the full agreement. And you know, it will involve you know some, I think, negotiation about what to do with respect to U.S. sanctions. Um, that Iran might claim fall inside of the JCPOA agreement, the United States may contest uh, that characterization. Also, there has to be negotiation about research activities that Iran has undertaken that are irreversible and outside of the JCPOA. Um, all of that is possible. Uh, and I will just be very honest with you, um, it's no secret, I have counseled the administration to not be shy about taking the first step here. Um, we were the first to violate the agreement, uh, so I think it stands to reason we could be the first uh, to step back into or closer to the agreement, um, and I hope that you'll see some moves uh, that would show our willingness to um, provide a path back to the agreement soon. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the role of Congress here. And, and, and the way I want to frame it is that in 2015, when, when the JCPOA was signed, there was a clear rupture between where Congress stood and, and where the administration stood at that time. And, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, the, uh, that, was, that was a mistake at that point. I, I wanted to ask you whether at this point in time going forward, uh, is there a partnership now between Congress and, and the administration? Are they sort of locking step if, if these measures that you say happen, if the United States is able to get back in the deal and then push for an additional deal, it, uh, it does, does it have congressional support or, or the, the Iranians and, and the administration may find themselves back in 2015 again? The uh, the nuclear agreement is is not a treaty. I don't believe it's a treaty. I don't believe that it necessitates ratification by the United States Senate. Um, at the same time, you're always better off, especially with these fairly significant executive level agreements, to have um, support from uh, Congress. Um, Republicans are going to oppose um, any move back towards the JCPOA. Um, uh, period. Stop. So if you're looking for bipartisan buy-in, it's not, it's, it's not coming. 
Uh, and I would not advise the administration to wait around hoping that Republicans um, uh, enter the tent. They won't. Um, there were a small number of Democrats in the Senate that opposed the JCPOA. I think all of them opposed uh, Trump's decision to uh, get out of the JCPOA, but um, many of them uh, would like to see this new negotiation include items outside of the nuclear agreement. I think that's a mistake. Uh, and I believe that the vast majority of Democrats in the Senate and the House um, support getting back into the JCPOA and then using that as a platform to litigate other issues like the ballistic missile program. So uh, there is going to continue to be a diversity of opinions in Congress. There may not actually be 50% for any one option because there are some members of, the, of Congress that want no dialogue with Iran, Republicans. There are some Democrats that only want a comprehensive dialogue with Iran. And then there's the majority of Democrats like me that want to get this nuclear question taken care of. So, I, so that's a long way of saying if the administration is going to wait for consensus in Congress, I don't think it's going to happen, um, which means they've got to move uh, on their own. Consult Congress, but I don't know a consensus position is coming. So uh, I guess the sort of the lesson the Iranians learned last time is that you cannot trust the US administration because if let's say Republicans are back in 2024, whatever deal they sign with the Biden administration can be torn up. And even within JCPOA, there's a clause that the Iranians by 2023 have to ratify the additional protocol and the, the administration has to ratify uh, the JCPOA in Congress. And, what you say um, suggests that that's a far, that's a far idea. That's not going to happen. So essentially, how does the United States convince Iran that that whatever agreement it achieves has legs and that it will survive a potentially a, 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 a Republican administration in the future? I, I think it's important to remind the Iranians that um, you know Donald Trump, in many ways, was an outlier. Um, within Republican foreign policy establishment circles when he decided to remove the United States from the JCPOA. The advice he was getting from many Republicans uh, was to stay in the agreement. And so um, it is not automatic that a future Republican administration would decide to um, pull out of the JCPOA if the Biden administration uh, got uh, back in. But I will agree that this whipsaw of US foreign policy um, is compromising our ability to do deals all over the world. Um, I, I would argue that you know, part of the difficulty right now in um, reestablishing transatlantic unity is that our European partners um, with respect to the JCPOA, but also with respect to China policy and other uh, areas of, of uh, international relations are worried about the same thing. They're worried that they're gonna start um, locking arms of the United States only for us to pull back away three years from now. So um, this is in part what the Biden administration is grappling with. I think it's part of their reason why they don't wanna remove or rescind all of the Trump era sanctions. Because my sense is the Biden administration rightly places a, um, uh, an importance on some degree of continuity, even from the Trump administration where there were deep disagreements, the Biden administration would not have applied sanctions in the way that the Trump administration did. I'm not sure they're interested in un, 
uh, rolling, undoing all of them um, because they do want to create this um, message of consistency wherever possible and hope that a future Republican administration uh, follows suit. Very interesting notion. So, so uh, um, uh, the Iran, Iranian reaction to the administration's position, at least within the nuclear deal, has been to move in the direction of uh, major escalation. Uh, the Supreme Leader in Iran talked about 60% enrichment. Uh, there have been back and forth hints in the public arena in Iran that Iran should actually pursue a nuclear bomb. The Minister of Intelligence in Iran suggested that uh, the stockpile of 20% enriched uranium continues to grow. And, you know, Iran's going through presidential elections, which means that perhaps serious negotiations will not even be engaged till fall. Uh, so so uh, if Iran begins to get closer and closer to a breakout position, will that uh, uh, trigger Congress basically acting on its own and escalating with Iran, or would it actually bring the administration and Congress together in terms of a, a way to engage Iran faster to stop the breakout? I, I think it's a, it's a very tough uh, hypothetical. Um, I, I think, but I think the, the scenario that you sketch out is all the more reason for the United States to act now in a bold way to get back into this agreement. Um, again, I, I have supported the United States taking some early steps uh, to show our willingness to get back into the deal um, so as to establish a de-escalatory pattern. Um, and as you know, there are lots of ways in which you can do that. It, it may actually not be the United States that makes the step. It may be an ally uh, that releases frozen Iranian funds, uh, for instance, uh, that shows uh, a good faith uh, effort to move back uh, towards a deal. So I guess my focus is not on gaming out what would happen in Congress if the Iranians continued to spiral out of the deal. You know, my focus is going to be to convince the administration um, to um, take steps to get back into the deal sooner rather than later. And remember, this is um, not just about what Iran is doing on the nuclear deal. Let's think about Yemen for a moment. There's a uh, important offer on the table from the Saudis, not brand new. Um, it's just the Saudi side of the offer. Um, but the Iranians will have no interest in de-escalating in Yemen uh, so long as the maximum pressure sanctions apply to their economy. And yet we have this window where um, in, maybe in part because of what's been happening on the ground in Yemen, the Saudis are interested in coming back to the table. Um, the only way to get the Houthis there is to at least provide um, a, a bit of a push from Iran. Can't happen unless you're back into the agreement. So there's all sorts of other very important equities to the United States in the region uh, that cannot advance without the United States back in the agreement. Which uh, actually brings me to a question I wanted to ask, especially because uh, you know you wrote a very important piece in in Foreign Affairs about the imperative of having a very different Middle East policy for the United States, uh, particularly given the challenges that the U.S. is face facing with China domestically. So, so does does the current tangle with Iran run the risk of bogging down the United States in the Middle East for longer than? 
than it, it anticipated. In other words, we're trying to de-escalate in Yemen and Libya and, and Syria and, and get out of Afghanistan, hopefully May 1st or sometime thereafter. But, but ultimately, uh, JCPOA may bring us back to the region. I mean, the, the failure to get back in the nuclear deal bring us back into the region. Well, I, I, I think it, it, it holds us to the region um, in that, um, so long as you have these provocative actions against U.S. personnel, um, it spins up an escalatory uh, cycle, which will lead many here in Congress to argue for additional resources uh, into the region. Um, in the piece that you mentioned, um, you know, I, I make the case that I don't think is, you know, terribly groundbreaking or earth shattering that, um, you know, the Sunni states matter less to the United States than they did 30 years ago, um, the Carter Doctrine is not as relevant when we export uh, more oil than we import and we get more oil today from Mexico than we do from the Saudis. Um, and I worry that our troops and our assets there are sitting ducks. Um, you know, we didn't have this military footprint in the region prior to September 11th, and they're there uh, to be targeted by the Iranians or militias uh, or extremist groups. Um, increasingly, I, I don't think they are protecting our interests. They are more of a liability than an asset. So I certainly am arguing for us to get back into this agreement, but I am also arguing more broadly for the United States to rethink its military footprint in the region, to rethink the defense guarantee that it has provided Sunni states, reset that according to our current uh, interests in the region. Um, I, I, for the time being, I may be a little bit outside of the mainstream in these uh, recommendations, but um, my hope is that we're going to talk about the right size of U.S. policy in the region, not just through the prism of the JCPOA very soon. So let me ask you, in, in areas like, let's say, Syria or Libya or Yemen, uh, where obviously the Iranian angle is very much there, uh, uh, does Congress basically hold strong positions in terms of what the U.S. policy ought to be? Or is there a sort of a consensus in terms of uh, in terms of how we should handle Syria, for instance, or Yemen or Libya, for that matter? Um, on Yemen, I think there is a growing consensus, and that consensus is for the United States to get out and stay out of that conflict. I just think that increasingly, both Republicans and Democrats have you know grown tired of. Uh, this argument that U.S. support for the Saudis will eventually allow them to achieve a military victory. Um, uh, so on Yemen policy, I think there's consensus, less so on Syria policy. But, but I'll say this more broadly. Um, you know, when you come to Congress, um, you know, you are handed the foreign policy consensus. Uh, and that consensus has at its bedrock um, that the United States and Saudi Arabia and the United States and Gulf countries are uh, interlocked in our interests. Um, and I think it's time for us to you know, uh, understand that while the Iranians are an adversary uh, and they are a destabilizing force uh, on the region, there are plenty of places in which US interests and Gulf state interests uh, diverge. Um, and, and I can sort of tell that full story, but um, I think we are much better positioned uh, if we take a step back uh, and essentially say to the Saudis, we are no longer going to be an unconditional partner with you in these proxy fights, whether they be in Syria, Yemen, cold fights like those in uh, Lebanon. 
Um, and I'd point to 2019 as an interesting example for what happens when the US security guarantee is modified. I think the Saudis expected that we were going to take action after the attack on the Aramco facility. Obviously, we came very close to doing that, but Donald Trump decided to pull back. Not coincidentally, open source reporting suggested that soon thereafter, there were some dialogue or, or some green shoots of dialogue between Tehran and Riyadh um, as the Saudis realized that maybe they needed to think about a regional security architecture um, that could prevent future attacks rather than the reliance on a U.S. security guarantee. That's a big bet to take, um, but I, I, I argue that now is the time to, to take it, to try to incentivize um, adversaries in the region to sit down, in my mind, requires the United States uh, to end its security blank check to one side of that fight for regional hegemony. Interesting. So, uh, Senator, you, you've met with, at, at least, I think, I Iran's foreign minister at some point in New York. You, you, you know the characters. Is, is it a concern for the United States that uh, the direction that uh, uh, the confrontation between U.S. and Iran is, is pushing Iranian domestic politics, that, if it, that Iran may ha end up having a much more obdurate and, uh, and, and hardline uh, president and foreign minister coming in. Is that, is that a concern, let's say, for Congress or the administration, you think, or should be? I, I think it, it is a concern. I've, I've had a number of conversations with the administration on, on this broad topic, and we um, regularly you know, talk about the impact that U.S. policy has on Iranian politics and vice versa. Again, um, it, 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 for me, it's another reason why there is a blinking red light right now um, on the necessity regarding the necessity for the United States to get back into this agreement as we tick closer uh, to the late spring, early summer uh, elections in Iran. I, I would guess it will make it much more difficult uh, for uh, Zarif and Rouhani to do any kind of diplomatic deal with the United States. Um, and in their, their interest in getting back into the agreement is likely predicated on the ability of the lessening of sanctions delivering relief by those elections. Um, I think there's always a legitimate argument, as you know, to be had as to, you know, to what extent U.S. policy really impacts um, Iranian uh, uh, politics. But um, why take the chance? Um, getting back into the JCPOA post-haste good for the United States' security, it's good for regional security, it's good for our alliance structure, and it gives us at least a chance to make sure that the next um, government in Iran is even more hardline than the current hardline regime. Let me also ask you about uh, the, uh, the, uh, the issue of China here, uh, namely that um, uh, uh, you know, last time when we had a major global competitor, the Soviet Union, that, that competition spilled out into different regions of the world and into the, and into the Middle East. Um, is, this a, is this something you see over the horizon or something that foreign policy uh, discussion should focus on and namely uh, uh, that, that China, as, as we become more entangled with China, that this may also be something we ought to think about in terms of Iran, the region? 
Well, I, I make this point in my piece in Foreign Affairs. Um, I, I, I think it's dangerous to overhype uh, the interests of China in the region. Um, yes, they have defense partnerships um, with countries like UAE that didn't exist decades ago, but uh, the Chinese don't have an interest in getting themselves too dirty by Middle East security issues. Um, they'd like to sell some systems into the region, but they're not offering any kind of partnership in the way the United States is, nor are they ever going to come to the rescue of a nation that is attacked or invaded. Uh, so when folks in DC say, hey, if we don't sell Reaper drones to the Emiratis uh, or to the Saudis, um, then the Chinese are going to come in and sell instead. Um, I, I, I think that mistakes the level of security interests that the Chinese have. And I think it's worth for the time being, um, you know, being a little more bold about calling the bluff of some of our security partners in the region who say, if you don't sell stuff to us, I'm just going to go to the Russians uh, or the Chinese. At the same time, we should be doubling down on economic partnerships. Um, you know, we should be giving additional tools to the Development Finance Corporation, to USAID, um, to be bigger players in uh, the region, because that's the most significant offer that the Chinese are, are, are making. That's news to no one. Thank you, Senator. I was going to uh, ask my colleague, uh, Professor Bajorli, to uh, field some of the questions that the audience may have uh, as well. Sure thing. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Senator. So the audience has been asking some questions, um, and I'm trying to. I've been trying to just summarize some of them. One of them is asking, um, what would your recommendations be to President Biden and his administration about what their first steps towards Iran should be in getting back into the JCPOA? And the other uh, sort of um, themes of questions coming up are in relation to your foreign uh, affairs article argument uh, that we should be recalibrating our relationship with the Gulf and Saudi Arabia. How do we do that with both the influence of um, interest groups and lobbying from those countries uh, in the foreign policy establishment in the United States? And second, also without the, uh, it seems, willingness to recalibrate our relationship, especially with MBS and others within the Saudi um, leadership. And, um, yeah. Sure. Um, well, let me take the, the, the second one first um, and, and just um, maybe sort of restart the discussion around my piece. What I'm arguing for in the piece is a, a deeper, more constructive relationship with the Gulf. I, I'm suggesting that our security partnership um, does not accrue to the long-term interest of either the United States or our partners in the region. Because um, if these contests, um, both hot and cold, between the Gulf states and Iran, uh, and of course Turkey is involved here as well, um, continue to spin up, um, that's not good for our Gulf state partners. It's really hard to attract investment into the region um, if uh, you have to constantly be worried about being targeted by missiles um, from uh, Yemen uh, or uh, other Iranian-sponsored uh, uh, entities. Um, so uh, secondarily, um, we need to press them harder on human rights um, because the United States needs to be a leader uh, on issues of human and civil rights, but also because in the long run, um, this bargain that has been cut with people, with, with citizens in the region can't last. 
um, oil revenues are not going to be a sustainable mechanism to run these economies and subsidize individuals in the long run. And so this deal in which you don't get any representation, um, but you have a growing oil economy um, is fragile and at risk. So we need to open up democratic space so that as oil revenues decline, you don't have a tempest of unrest. So I'm arguing for what I think is a, um, a set of US priorities that ultimately um, are in the best interests of, of, of those nations, unwinding uh, the, the, the military conflicts in the region uh, and opening up space uh, for political reform. What are the first steps with Iran? Listen, I think there are a number of steps that have been taken. Um, uh, you know, some folks have talked about um, the release of Iranian funds held by the South Koreans. Um, which the South Koreans have an interest in um, and perhaps targeting those dollars for humanitarian purposes as uh, a first step. Again, I have been clear that I would not be opposed to a release of certain US sanctions. Um, I, we didn't get anything for those sanctions. Maximum pressure was a failure from start to finish. So it's not as if, um, you know, it's not as if we're losing anything from a policy perspective in starting to give a bit uh, on the sanctions we've imposed. So, you know, it, whether it's from an ally uh, or whether it's a release of, uh, of a subset of U.S. sanctions, um, again, my advice is that we not be afraid of taking um, that first step and then wait and see if there's a step in return. Because, by the way, if there isn't, um, then, then that makes it much easier for the United States to get back on the same page as the P5 plus one. If the P5 plus one doesn't see reciprocity from Iran, um, then uh, it's much more likely that the, the next message can be delivered in a multilateral way. So in regards to the, um, the South Korea unfreezing of the funds, it seems that even though there might have been initial um, forms of a green light given that was very quickly walked back by the Biden administration. Um, and so moving on with, with what you were just saying right now, um, as the Biden administration is so far continuing maximum pressure on Iran, even though as you're mentioning, it seems to not be making much policy sense, but the sanctions are still in place. Uh, the uh, OFAC has come out and said that they are um, will be going after Chinese um, uh, by the, the Chinese buying of Iranian oil so that the enforcement is going to be coming down from the administration's end. Um, and taking that into um, sort of consideration with broader things that are happening in the region, some folks want to ask about the sanctions on um, how what's going on with Iran and sort of placed in uh, sanctions with Syria, pressures on Lebanon and especially Hezbollah, the continuation of maximum pressure that from the point of view of uh, the Iranians, this looks like not only a continuation of maximum pressure, but that uh, actually pressure is being increased from the United States and on Iran and its allies throughout the region. And so given that it was the United States that pulled out and given um, the continuation of these pressures, despite what Biden said on the campaign trail, um, how do we sort of going back to Professor Nasta's question of you earlier in the discussion, how, how from the U.S.'s perspective can we get back to a, a, a certain kind of timetable to, to re-engage. Yeah. Well, listen, you, as you've already heard, you don't need to convince me uh, that the United States should take the 
the first step here. I'm not afraid of that. Um, in fact, I think it is you know, likely necessary um, given that we were the party that withdrew from the deal. Um, amongst those behaviors you listed, um, not included was the missile strike that the United States launched um, on Iranian-connected militias uh, inside uh, Syria. It, it may not have been coincidental that uh, within 24, 48 hours of that strike, Iran announced that they would not be interested in uh, coming to a dialogue with the United States and Europe regarding the nuclear uh, program. Um, that strike um, didn't um, uh, prevent uh, future strikes against U.S. interests. It was only a few days later that uh, Al-Assad base was uh, targeted and an American contractor died uh, as a result. Uh, so, you know, I would argue for a military de-escalation, uh, a um, move towards the negotiating table on behalf of the administration. Um, I, I certainly have made that case publicly. I've made that case privately to them. I, I do want to say I think they believe, I think they have confidence that there will be an ability to drive Iran to this negotiating table, that there will be an ability to try to um, have both sides sitting down and talking about the pathway back into the uh, into the deal. But as you mentioned, every day that goes by, that maximum pressure increases, that Iranian-backed forces in Yemen send missiles into Saudi Arabia, that our troops remain at risk from KH attacks in uh, in Iraq is a is a day that we are at risk of not being able to get back into this agreement, um, and that to me is a non-starter. So uh, again, you're preaching to the choir if you're making the case that uh, we should be bold in the steps that we take to try to restart diplomacy. Great, thank you, Senator. And um, another question that just came in is. Um, that could maintaining the current sanctions regime on the Islamic Republic have the unintended consequence of expediting the diversification of Iran's economy away from the energy sector? And if so, how do we proceed? Um, and I would, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably not the expert on, the, on that topic. I don't have a deep read into um, uh, the diversity or potential future diversity of the Iranian uh, economy. Our sanctions are, you know, not just limited to the oil economy. We, we, we have a broad array of, of, of sanctions that uh, I would imagine are hindering growth in almost every sector of uh, the Iranian economy. And, you know, again, we, we, we know this generally about sanctions uh, that while they can impact the decisions of, um, of governments, uh, they can also um, make it harder and more difficult for those governments to do deals with the United States because uh, they worsen attitudes about the United States. They turn the citizenry of that country against the United States, and that makes it more difficult for that nation to engage uh, in U.S. diplomacy. Often sanctions end up you know, hurting citizens and civilians um, without actually changing the behaviors of regimes. Of course, Iran is the example where a sanctions regime um, done in, over a long period of time in a multilateral way um, had a dispositive impact. 
part of the reason that I have been an opponent of the maximum pressure campaign is that um, it, it was not constructed the same way as the Obama era sanctions. In fact, there were so many ways for the Iranians to go to the Europeans or the Russians or the Chinese or the Indians to find a way out um, that the sanctions, while not being feckless, uh, were just not going to ever bring them to the table in the way that we were uh, back during the Obama years. So uh, again, that's what we're left with. The Biden administration right now is continuing to impose a series of ineffective sanctions. And I think that that has to be part of their calculus as well. Uh, Senator, let me uh, uh, ask you about uh, uh, the, the, I mean, the, there's, a, there's a humanitarian side to these uh, sanctions as well. Uh, and, and obviously now, particularly on Yemen, the administration has, has taken a uh, much more of an interest in the humanitarian impact of the war. Uh, is there a way to, uh, aside from the larger economic sanctions, to address some of the humanitarian issues uh, that, that Iran faces, particularly in the, in the, in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, I'm certainly open to that. I was supportive of efforts in the Trump administration to um, provide a, a small release valve for COVID relief into uh, Iran. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased at the decision the administration recently took to um, let aid flow back into Houthi-controlled uh, areas of Yemen. Um, on another side of the world, I just sent a letter to Secretary Blinken yesterday uh, arguing for the end to diesel sanctions in Venezuela, which seemed to be only impacting the poor people who rely on diesel fuel to power their farm trucks uh, without really affecting the uh, regime. We need to sort of have step back and you know have a have a bigger conversation about the impact uh, of U.S. sanctions and our over reliance on them. Um, you know we've sort of come to be a, a two trick pony when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. We sanction our adversaries um, and we sell arms to our friends. Um, so um, count me in for for a much sort of broader look at how we re-equip the foreign policy toolkit so that the only thing we have, so that we have something more than simply economic sanctions when a country, you know, veers away from international norms. Thank you very much, Senator. For um, we're, we're unfortunately at the end of our time. This was an extremely rich conversation and, uh, and, and we're very grateful for you sharing your time with us and, and wish you the best in, as, as you pursue all of these challenges in Congress. Thank you. Well, let me just, as we sign off, say thank you to, to SACE and thank you to the Rethinking uh, Iran Initiative. Um, uh, you do really good work. You are often thinking out of the box um, and for those of us in Congress who, you know, try to um, fill that lane uh, inside the building, we really appreciate the work that you do um, uh, outside the building. So thanks for this partnership and thanks for having me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.